A new NPR poll finds Americans want Congress to compromise, but most think with divided control of government, most members can't work together. It's Thursday, December 15th. This is WBUR's Morning Edition. Good morning. I'm Rupa Shanoi. Coming up, incoming Israeli Prime Minister Benjamin Netanyahu talks about the possibility of a lasting peace with the Palestinian people. The only peace that will hold is one in which the Palestinians have all the powers to govern themselves, but none of the powers to threaten our life. Also, after the success of ballot measures that protect abortion access, some Republican state legislatures are trying to make those measures harder to pass. And this hour, Life of Pi comes to the stage in Cambridge featuring puppets. That element of movement where you've got a marriage of sound, music and the puppetry was really exciting because I hadn't experienced that. Written for humans, not for animals. Cloudy today, rain overnight in the 40s. It's 7.01. Now the news. Live from NPR News, I'm Corva Coleman. A severe winter storm continues to pound the central U.S. Blizzard conditions are imperiling parts of Nebraska and South Dakota. The same storm system has spawned deadly tornadoes in the south. Three people have been killed by tornadoes in Louisiana, including a child. Louisiana Governor John Bell Edwards says state officials are ready to help. The state of Louisiana so that all of the assets, all of the personnel of the state of Louisiana, all of our agencies will do what is necessary uh, to respond to and help the people recover from this disaster. Tornado watches are now posted for the Big Bend area of Florida and southern Georgia. President Biden is promising hundreds of millions of dollars in new investments across Africa. This stems from this week's U.S.-Africa Summit. NPR's Asma Khalid reports the Biden administration has signed agreements with delegations from nearly 50 African nations. Biden spoke about his commitment to promoting trade and entrepreneurship in Africa. When Africa succeeds, the United States succeeds. Quite frankly, the whole world succeeds as well. He announced a new memo of understanding to open up additional trade opportunities between the U.S. and Africa, and he specifically spoke to boosting energy and infrastructure in the region. Improving Africa's infrastructure is essential to our vision of building a stronger global economy that can better withstand the kinds of shocks that we've seen in the past few years. Biden also announced plans to expand access to reliable Internet across Africa. Asma Khalid, NPR News. The House has passed a short-term spending bill that will keep the federal government funded through the end of next week. The Senate is expected to take up the measure today. Lawmakers need to beat this Friday's deadline or the government runs out of spending money. Congressional negotiators say they are close to an agreement on a final spending bill to finance the government through the end of the next fiscal year. A congressional subcommittee finds that the U.S. botched its initial response to the pandemic. NPR's Ping Huang reports this says the country is ill-prepared for the next one unless it changes course. After two and a half years of investigating, the House Select Subcommittee on the Coronavirus Crisis held its final hearing. James Clyburn, Democrat from South Carolina, chairs the subcommittee. He says that COVID is not the last public health emergency that the U.S. will face. There is more we can do to prevent the next emergency and to be ready when it happens. The recommendations released in a report this week include investing in next-generation vaccines and treatments, strengthening supply chains, and providing universal paid sick leave. But House Republicans say that the report ignores errors made by Democrats and also how the pandemic started. Those are topics Republicans intend to investigate when they take over the House in January. Ping Huang, NPR News. And you're listening to NPR 
News. From WBUR in Boston, I'm Rupa Shinoy. The state has opened a temporary shelter in Devons. Its goal is to help manage services for immigrants and families experiencing homelessness in Massachusetts. But WBUR's Gabrielle Emanuel reports that advocates are raising concerns about conditions at the facility. Massachusetts officials say the intake center provides a place to stay for a few days while families get services and wait for other shelter. But Liz Alfred, an attorney at Greater Boston Legal Services, says the setup is unacceptable. It's like a refugee camp. There's no privacy. There's not really, it doesn't even look like place to put your stuff. Videos taken by a family inside the shelter show tight rows of cots and shower facilities in a tent outside. While other family shelters have private rooms, state officials tell Alfred the Devons shelter is comparable to what's provided during short-term emergencies, such as fires and natural disasters. For 90.9 WBUR, I'm Gabriella Emanuel. Families of the children who were molested at a Malden daycare in the 1980s are expressing relief that two siblings convicted of the crimes will not be pardoned. Governor Charlie Baker withdrew that request yesterday. He said it was clear there wasn't enough support on the governor's council. Brenda Hurley McCarthy's daughter was one of the abuse victims at the Fells Acres daycare. We may very well be able to finally put this behind us. I don't know if my daughter will ever recover. I know that it will always affect me, but I think we may be able to have some semblance of normalcy. Baker requested the pardon last month, saying he had serious doubts about the evidence used to convict Gerald Amaralt and Cheryl Amaralt Lefebvre. Accusers and their families say the children's testimony was truthful and not manipulated. The Amaralt's attorney calls the pardon withdrawal cruel. The Natick Select Board will meet today to discuss whether one of the town's police officers should keep his job. James Quilty pleaded guilty this week to charges related to sexually assaulting a colleague. He was sentenced to three years probation and has to register as a sex offender. He's currently on unpaid leave. Natick kept details of the case secret for more than two years. WBUR is suing the town for documents related to the case. The city of Cambridge is giving out $75 debit cards to people who get a COVID vaccine or booster today. Anna Kaplan is with the Cambridge Public Health Department. I cannot emphasize enough that the vaccine will reduce the severity of that infection should it happen. And even though it doesn't feel like it, the vaccines actually do reduce the possibility of getting COVID in the first place and of transmitting it. The clinic is open to as many as 800 people who live or work in the city. It'll run from 4 to 8 this afternoon at the Cambridge Side Mall. It's 7.07. We're funded by you, our listeners, and by Cambridge Trust, a private bank offering a full suite of custom financial solutions tailored to its clients. Their team provides private banking, wealth management, and commercial and innovation banking designed to power any ambition. You can visit their offices or connect online at cambridgetrust.com slash waytowealth. Tonight at the Garden, the Bruins skate with the Los Angeles Kings. And in your forecast, cloudy with a slight chance for rain this afternoon. It'll be in the lower 40s. More rain and wind overnight. Temperatures around 40. Tomorrow, rain east of 495. The Worcester area should get less than an inch of snow. It'll be in the 30s and 40s. It should dry out by Saturday afternoon. It's 37 degrees in Boston at 708. WBUR supporters include Progressive. 
Progressive Commercial Insurance protects small businesses, from retailers to tradespeople, covering a variety of business needs with a range of coverages. More for entrepreneurs at ProgressiveCommercial.com. It's Morning Edition from NPR News. I'm Ian Martinez. I'm Rob Schmitz. And I'm Steve Inskeep. Benjamin Netanyahu is preparing to return as Prime Minister of Israel. His party did well in recent elections, so the conservative leader is trying to assemble a new government just a year and a half after he lost an election amid his corruption trial. All politics is cruel. Israeli politics is crueler than most. I've been subjected, especially my family, to endless vilification because I keep winning elections. During his time out of power, Netanyahu wrote a book called Bibi, which is his nickname. Politicians often write memoirs when they retire, but his look back on his life comes as his career continues. He begins with an episode 50 years ago in 1972. An airline hijacking drama centering on a Belgian airliner at the Tel Aviv-Israel airport has... Then as now, Palestinians were fighting Israeli occupation, and a militant group took a plane load of hostages. Israeli commandos, including a young Netanyahu, smashed in the emergency exit doors to climb inside. The 21-hour drama on the side runway of Lidda International Airport ended with less than a minute of gunfire. When it was over, two male Arab guerrillas lay dead... Netanyahu was wounded. Four years later, his brother was killed in an Israeli raid to rescue another plane load of hostages. I think that was the uh, event that uh, propelled me to to the rest of my life. What does it say that 50 years have passed and Israel is still fighting the same unresolved conflict? Well, I I think it's uh, not Israel is fighting it. The world is fighting it. Democratic states uh, worldwide, the battle of terrorism, the battle uh, that has uh, uh, now been taken over by radical Islamic terrorism. Although there's also this narrower conflict, of course, between Israelis and Palestinians. That's what I mean that is unresolved. Well, uh, it's unresolved because the uh, Palestinians don't want peace with Israel. They want a peace without Israel. In 1947, world powers agreed to partition Palestine, intending one part for Israel. A planned Palestinian state was stillborn, and Israel captured the land intended for it during a 1967 war. During its occupation, Israel has built Jewish settlements there. In the 1990s, Netanyahu criticized an Israeli-Palestinian peace accord and went on to become Israel's dominant political figure. During 15 years as prime minister, he built relations with Arab states while bypassing Palestinians. So I went around them, went to the Arab states, the Gulf states, uh, the United Arab Emirates, Bahrain, and from there also to Morocco and Sudan, and forged the historic uh, peace accords. I believe that uh, within a few days, as I hope, I'll form a new government. I'll expand that circle of peace. His achievement was historic and left Palestinians out. Wow, everyone is crowding here. Earlier this year, our colleague Daniel Estrin reported on Palestinians in a crowded hospital desperate for life-saving medical care they could only find on the far side of Israeli checkpoints. Why did you come here? He needs heart surgery. Three months. We are literally suffering for three months now. We just want him to be operated, that's all. I've been in Gaza and the West Bank, as you know. Our correspondents have been there for years. We do cover extremists, we cover Hamas, but 
also meet ordinary people trying to live their lives uh, who feel consistently humiliated by Israel, which is the primary power. Can't get basic things like health care because they have to get permits and cross checkpoints. What does your new government offer them? Offers them peace, number one. Offers them also a better life. Uh, I've been a champion of uh, economic uh, betterment, not as a substitute for a political settlement, but because I think it just makes life worth living, easier to live, and also it does pave the way for uh, peace. You're right that the uh, majority of ordinary Palestinians want a good life. I think their tragedy is that for the last century, uh, really from the 1920s, they've been commandeered by a leadership, uh, a radical leadership that refuses to make a genuine peace with the Jewish state. Do you see any way that ordinary Palestinians would get political equality through whatever, whatever formula? Do you see a way that can yes. happen in the foreseeable yes. future? How? Yes, my formula is very simple. The, the only peace that will hold is one that can, we can defend. And the one that we can defend is one in which the Palestinians have all the powers to govern themselves, but none of the powers to threaten our life, which means that security... Uh, in whatever political arrangements we'll have, realistically, we'll have to remain in Israel's uh, hands. And I, I they said won't this see that friend. as political equality, of course. No, of course, I, I don't hide that for a minute. I say it openly. Uh, Joe Biden, a friend of 40 years, uh, when he was vice president, uh, was in Israel. And he said to me, but Bibi, that's not, uh, uh, that's not complete sovereignty. And I said, you're right, Joe, but that's the only one that will last. Now, that conversation with Joe Biden points to Netanyahu's sometimes difficult relations with the United States. In 2015, when Barack Obama was president, Netanyahu addressed Congress to criticize an agreement to limit Iran's nuclear program. We must all stand together to stop Iran's march of conquest, subjugation, and terror. Netanyahu writes that his challenge to Obama raised his global stature. Later, he was close to President Trump, who pulled the U.S. out of the Iran deal. Since then, Iran has accelerated its nuclear program. Is Israel safer today than it was in 2018 when the U.S. pulled out? Yeah, well, I'll tell you, you're not safer at all uh, until you have a credible military option. Netanyahu insisted any agreement is useless and that rogue states give up their nuclear ambitions only when threatened or attacked. I've said that I will not let Iran, that calls openly for the destruction of my country, and by the way, also chants death to America. And if they have ICBMs, they'll threaten your cities, every one I, of your I've cities. I've heard that chant. I've been in Tehran, but I've also spoken with Rob Malley, the current U.S. envoy for Iran, who said on NPR this year that compared to five years ago, Iran is, quote, much closer to having enough fissile material for a bomb. That sounds like Israel would be less safe. Well, how do you think it would be if we hadn't done all the things that Mr. Malley doesn't describe to? I'm not even sure that he knows all the things that we did. Israel is widely suspected to have used sabotage and even assassinations to set back Iran's nuclear development. Now that Joe Biden is president, the United States has sought to resume the nuclear deal, but Netanyahu hopes that protests within Iran will change that. Joe Biden has been a great friend. Uh, although we've had our disagreements, he always says, Bibi, I love you, I don't agree with you on anything. It's not true. We agree on quite a few things. I have a suspicion right now that because of the unfolding events, the dramatic events in Iran and the change of attitude that has happened across the political spectrum, left and right in many lands, that people understand that the way to go is not to return to the uh, flawed nuclear agreement, but in fact to adopt a much more resolute 
um, attitude. Netanyahu can set Israel's attitude once he assembles a majority in the parliament. It's fragmented among many parties. He's criticized for making alliances with leaders very far to his right. They've attacked the place of minorities in Israel, such as Arabs or those who identify as LGBTQ. Netanyahu insists the far right will not make policy. They're joining me. I'm not joining them. I'll have two hands firmly on the steering wheel. I won't let anybody uh, do anything to LGBT or to deny uh, our Arab citizens their rights or anything like that. It just won't happen. Well, and the test of time will prove that. Well, let me let me ask about one person in particular, Itamar Ben-Gavir, who, as some will know, was convicted in 2007 of supporting a terrorist organization of incitement, calling Arab members of the Knesset, the parliament, a fifth column, saying Arabs should be expelled. Uh, member of an extremist group, we could go on for some time. You say that you will set the policy, he won't, but you've said that you want him to be in charge of the police. What value does that specific individual bring to the job of overseeing the police? Well, first of all, uh, his eligibility was decided by the Supreme Court. Secondly, he's modified a lot of his views since then. And uh, I have to say that, you know, with uh, with the power and responsibility, with power comes responsibility, not always. And I certainly will ensure that that will be the case. Now, you ask about the what, yeah, police. What, what makes him valuable as head of the police, of all things? Well, I think one of the things that uh, uh, that we've seen is the erosion of internal security in Israel. Uh, it's a big, big issue. I have to say his party ran on that. Uh, he says, I want to be tested. I think I can bring security to Arabs and Jews alike, the Arab citizens and Jewish citizens alike. Uh, that was his campaign promise. We have a coalition. Uh, I said, you're be, you're go- be given the chance. You'll be given the tools. You better do the job. Uh, and I think that uh, time will see. Uh, are, 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 you saying, are you saying that are you saying that Arab Israelis, Israeli Arabs, Palestinian citizens of Israel, as many will call themselves, should be able to trust this man who has said that Arabs should be expelled? No, I don't think anybody should trust anybody based on their uh, promises. But I, I think what uh, uh, what will be the test is not whether you pro- you believe him or not. But whether you see an actual result, the same is true of me. I was just reading a news report out of uh, Israel that uh, Ben Gavir, among other members of your prospective coalition, that he is demanding additional powers to keep the coalition together. First, is that true? Is he demanding that? And are you going to give it to him? (laughs) Let me tell you, Steve, they're all demanding it. Every one of them says, uh, I mean, Ben Gavir has... uh, Apparently, he's getting good press because his his demands are uh, appear uh, in the foreign press. But uh, no, they're all demanding it. Look, this is a Rubik's Cube. I don't know. This is the least enjoyable part of uh, politics. And by the way, Israeli politics in general, in my opinion, all politics, is not enjoyable. I'm not here for the joyride. It's not. But the least enjoyable Oh, come on. You have to enjoy this on some level. You've done it for so many years. No, you find satisfaction in a life of purpose. But I'm here not because I enjoy it. I'm here because I have a purpose. Benjamin Netanyahu is the Prime Minister-elect of Israel and also the author of Bibi, My Story. Thanks so much. It's always a pleasure talking with you. Thanks, Steve. Appreciate it. Since we spoke on Monday, Israel's Knesset, or parliament, began debating legislation that would give the far-right minister Ben Gavir extra authority over the police. Debates like that in the coming days will shape the government that Benjamin Netanyahu plans to preside over once again.
This is NPR News. This is 90.9 WBUR. I'm Rupa Shanoi. Coming up, the growing effort among some conservative state lawmakers to make ballot measures tougher to pass. It's 720. I'm Mary Louise Kelly. On All Things Considered, I try to drive hard questions. Well, your old car can drive our whole program. Consider donating it. And thanks. Just go to WBUR.org. We're funded by you, our listeners, and by Boston Ballet's The Nutcracker. Beloved characters return to delight all ages this holiday season on stage through December 31st. Tickets at bostonballet.org. I'm Robin Young. More people die of cardiac events in late December than any other time. It's called Holiday Heart. Maybe more drinking, less paying attention. Perhaps because they're someplace unfamiliar, or maybe because older family members may be at home while the rest of the family is out, you know, traveling or or away. Next time, here and now, today at noon on 90.9 WBUR, Boston's NPR news station. Cloudy and windy today with a high near 42. There's a slight chance of rain in the afternoon. Tonight, it stays relatively warm, falling to a low just around 40. There's a chance of rain overnight and all day tomorrow. The Worcester area may see a little snow. It'll still be windy. It's 37 degrees right now in Boston at 721. Support for NPR comes from this station and from EBSCO, currently hiring and committed to letting people thrive. Information about hybrid and remote positions is at careers.ebsco.com. And from Charles Schwab, dedicated to serving clients with 24-7 live support. The people at Schwab are committed to helping clients on their investing journey. Learn more at schwab.com. And from Searchlight Pictures with Empire of Light, a new film by Sam Mendes, starring Olivia Colman, Michael Ward, and Colin Firth, about the power of human connection during a time of great change, now playing in select theaters. And from the John D. and Catherine T. MacArthur Foundation at macfound.org. It's Morning Edition from NPR News. I'm Rob Schmitz. And I'm A. Martinez. In 2022, voters expanded Medicaid in South Dakota. In Missouri, they legalized recreational marijuana, and Michigan voters enshrined the right to an abortion. All these major changes started with a citizen-backed petition. NPR's Laura Benshoff is here to tell us why lawmakers in some states are trying to make it harder to approve such measures in the future. So, Laura, let's start with uh, Citizen-Led Initiatives 101. Okay, here's the deal. Normally, lawmakers get to pass laws, and they get to introduce constitutional amendments. But in about half the states, there's some form of direct democracy. And in 18, there are laws on the books saying citizens can actually initiate a change to the state's constitution. No politicians need it. Just get enough signatures and it goes on the ballot. And there's nothing inherently partisan about that. But we've seen a real effort since the mid-2010s to bring progressive ballot measures in GOP-led states. These are on issues which tend to be popular with a majority of voters, but are out of step with the Republican platform. For example, raising the minimum wage or expanding Medicaid. There have been more than 30 progressive ballot measures approved by voters since 2016, some in very conservative states. Ooh, I would imagine that conservative lawmakers do not love when that happens. You are right about that. Let's go to Ohio, where reporter Andy Chow of the State House News Bureau will give us an example of how Republican state leadership is responding to the threat of ballot initiatives there right now. Just weeks after the last election, 
Republican Secretary of State Frank LaRose launched a preemptive strike against future ballot measures to amend the Ohio Constitution. LaRose and a state Republican representative wrote out a resolution that would require all amendments to receive a 60% supermajority at the polls, rather than the current simple majority vote. This is about trying to make the Ohio Constitution less susceptible to special interests, and if something has 60% of support, then it will pass. This comes as advocates for abortion rights, legal marijuana use, and redistricting reform are all gearing up to put their issue on the ballot in 2023 or 2024. These are measures that have failed to gain traction in the Republican-dominated legislature, but polls show they're really popular with voters. Katie Shanahan is with the Equal Districts Coalition, which fights against gerrymandering and for direct democracy issues. She says the push to raise the threshold for a constitutional amendment is a way of subverting the will of the people. What's clear here is that this is an effort to block the people of Ohio's ability to amend our constitution and to ensure that we can enshrine rights and protections for the people that obviously Ohio Republicans don't want us to have. Most ballot measures in Ohio in the past 15 years have been championed by moneyed interest groups. Most have failed. Advocates for abortion rights and redistricting reform are optimistic voters will approve their issues because they have lots of local support. Republican state lawmakers were not able to pass the resolution to raise the amendment threshold to 60 percent of the vote during this month's lame duck session. But they say they'll try again, first thing next year. For NPR News, I'm Andy Chow in Columbus. All right, so Ohio is is moving very quickly to raise the bar for changing its constitutions. Uh, Laura, what does it look like in other parts of the country? In 2022, there were more than 50 bills that would have made the process harder or more difficult in some way, according to the Ballot Initiative Strategy Center. They were introduced in states like Missouri, Utah, and Oklahoma. And some of these measures, like the one we just heard about in Ohio, are pretty straightforward. They just try to raise the vote count needed to amend the Constitution. But Kelly Hall with the Fairness Project says there's another kind of bill, which is more like death by a thousand cuts. For example, requiring them to collect more signatures from different parts of the state, requiring the language to be printed all on one sheet of paper, meaning you have to carry around a bath towel size petition. They don't preclude people from participating by themselves, but they add up. Now, most of these bills fail, but a few have succeeded in the past years and have actually ended up on the ballot for voters to decide this past election. In Arkansas, voters rejected restrictions, but in Arizona, voters there actually agreed to make it harder to pass citizen-led initiatives. All right, so what can we expect in 2023? This push and pull is likely to continue, and there's another big issue fueling it. That's abortion rights. Progressive ballot initiative groups are looking to put that question to voters in about 10 states where it's currently banned or heavily restricted. And these are many of the same states that have already tried to restrict the citizen initiative process. So we can expect more ballot questions, more attempts to hold them back, and more lawsuits. That's NPR's Laura Benshoff. Laura, thanks. Thank you so much, A. Rent a car, rent a room, rent a Christmas tree? California gardener Monica Hudson rents out real and reusable tenant bombs. They're potted, of course. It was an idea that came to me when I watched the TV program of a garden shop in Britain loaning their trees. 
to their customers. That was 2009. Hudson was working as a tour guide then, but business had slowed due to the recession. So she started Rent-A-Living Christmas Tree. It's now up to about a thousand trees and draws hundreds of renters from California's Bay Area and Central Coast. Today we don't bother advertising because our trees are usually booked. Oh, we have a few art trees left now, but the bulk of the trees are booked by Thanksgiving. Customers can pick their tree online based on species, height, and price. There are big firs, juniors, even the most modest Charlie Brown specials. An eight-foot tree rental goes for about $125. When you order a living tree, it arrives, it's in a pot, it is fresh and beautiful, and your responsibility is to water it every day. After Christmas, the tree gets picked up and sent back to the nursery. And there it stays in its pot, hooked up to a drip irrigation system to keep it green for the following holiday season as it awaits its next new temporary home. Rocking around the Christmas tree, let the Christmas spirit ring. This is NPR News. This is 90.9 WBUR. I'm Rupa Shanoi. Coming up, a new NPR PBS NewsHour Marist poll shows that Americans want Congress to compromise, but most think members can't work together. It's 729. Remember, you can stay informed with what's happening in the news all day. Listen on the WBUR mobile app. We're funded by you, our listeners, and by Lauren Holleran with Gibson Sotheby's International Realty in Cambridge. Real estate brokerage that is grounded in data and committed to thoughtful design. LaurenHolleran.com And Boathouse, supporting La Collaborativa, dedicated to uplifting Latinx immigrants with food, housing, jobs, education, training, and more. And providing 10,000 families with holiday meal boxes this Christmas. Donations accepted at la-collaborativa.org donate. Live from NPR News in Washington, I'm Dave Mattingly. The Federal Reserve is raising interest rates again. The Fed announced its seventh rate hike of the year yesterday in its ongoing effort to try to bring down inflation in the U.S. economy. Fed Chair Jerome Powell says the half-point rate increase will be followed by additional rate hikes in 2023. He says that's despite the risks of the economy entering into recession. President Biden laid out billions of dollars in government and private funding for Africa yesterday when he spoke to the U.S. African Leaders Summit in Washington. At last night's White House dinner, attended by summit leaders, the president also acknowledged the legacy of slavery in the U.S. We remember the stolen men and women and children were brought to our shores in chains, subjected to unimaginable cruelty. The president called slavery America's original sin. That summit continues today. Authorities in Louisiana say tornadoes are responsible for at least three deaths over the last couple of days. Patsy Andrews lives in Farmerville, about 100 miles east of Shreveport. I heard a rushing wind like a train. And so me, I went to the, my back door. I said, who is that? And I tried to open it, but I could not open the door. So, because the wind was so heavy. Snow and ice are moving into the mid-Atlantic and the Northeast. This is NPR News. From WBUR in Boston, I'm Rupa Shanoi.
The Suffolk County District Attorney says officers were justified in the deadly shooting of a 19-year-old in Dorchester in 2019. A report released yesterday shows that Jamil Ellerby did not drop his gun when asked to by officers. Witnesses also say Ellerby fired at officers first before they shot him. Officers were initially called to the scene to investigate reports of another shooting. Some people living in Springfield and Longmeadow are speaking out against a proposed new natural gas pipeline in the area. Their concerns revolve around climate, safety, and environmental justice. WBUR's Miriam Wasser reports the state body that reviews energy projects held a hearing on the pipeline last night. Eversource wants to build the new five-mile pipeline between Longmeadow and Springfield. The company says the infrastructure is necessary for reliability. But many who spoke at last night's meeting argued that money would better be spent fighting climate change by helping households install electric heat pumps or other renewable energy projects. Gary Levine is a member of the Longmeadow Pipeline Awareness Group. He pointed out that natural gas pipelines leak methane, which is a potent greenhouse gas. We should be transitioning to renewable energy, not adding greenhouse gases and contributing to climate change. A recent report commissioned by the state recommended that Massachusetts stop investing in new gas pipeline infrastructure. For 90.9 WBUR, I'm Miriam Wasser. McKinley Special Education Schools in Boston's South End are getting a new name. The schools will now be called the Melvin H. King South End Academy. The Boston School Committee voted unanimously last night to name them after Mel King. The 94-year-old is a longtime Boston politician, educator, and community leader. It's 7.33. We're funded by you, our listeners, and by Lake Champlain Chocolates, celebrating the season with organic fair trade chocolates at local specialty food stores and at lakechamplainchocolates.com. The Bruins will be at home tonight to face the Los Angeles Kings. The Bees have won 13 of their last 16 games. In your forecast, overcast today in the low 40s and with some high winds. We may see some showers this afternoon. Tonight, temperatures only fall a little to around 40. Tomorrow, rainy and windy in the mid-40s. It's 37 degrees in Boston at 734. Support for NPR comes from this station. And from Data IQ, a platform for everyday AI to help organizations make AI part of their daily business. Designed to elevate people, teams, and companies. D-A-T-A-I-K-U dot com. And from Little Passports, designed to help children discover the world with hands-on activity kits delivered monthly for ages three and up. Learn more at littlepassports.com slash NPR. And from the Annie E. Casey Foundation. It's Morning Edition from NPR News. I'm E. Martinez in Culver City, California. And I'm Rob Schmitz in Washington, D.C. A new NPR PBS NewsHour Marist poll out today finds Americans want their leaders to compromise. But while that's the hope, the poll shows they don't have much confidence it'll actually happen. Joining us to talk about this and more is NPR senior political editor and correspondent Domenico Montanaro, who has all the numbers as usual. Good morning, Domenico. Hey, Rob. Domenico, there will be a new Congress sworn in in just a few weeks. Is the idea of compromise even likely? 
Well, people say often that they want compromise, but usually they want the other side to compromise with them. (laughs) (laughs) Yeah, that's what I thought you would say. But the finding in this poll was striking because it wasn't a small number who are saying so. 74% say they want members of Congress to compromise rather than stand on principle, which is actually the highest level we've seen in a decade. Uh, We're headed into divided government here in Washington, and it's notable that people want, as one Republican respondent who wanted to see compromise told me, members of Congress to, quote, stop acting like children. Uh, But the incentives in Congress tend to lean in the opposite direction. You know, for example, Republican leader Kevin McCarthy wants to be speaker and to get 218 votes from his conference to get there. He's probably going to have to make some steep concessions to the far right, not the middle, most likely. And those realities and what we've seen over the past decade or so isn't really engendering hope of compromise. Uh, 58% in the poll say they have no confidence the parties will do so. Uh, People have become far more pessimistic about their leaders. In 2008, it was only 23% that said they had no confidence. Hmm. So a huge shift here. And it's been Republicans who have been the least likely to compromise or want compromise. Does the poll say anything about what people want Congress to do? Overall, they want Congress to tackle inflation. You know, it's still a top concern. That's followed by preserving democracy and immigration, which has seen a surge. But Republicans and Democrats, I have to tell you, seem like they're coming from Mars or Venus or some other planets, <laughs> because when it comes to the issues, they're pretty far apart. I mean, take immigration and climate change, for example. Republicans think immigration should be a top priority, though likely not in the kind of comprehensive way that Democrats want or is needed. But only 1% of Democrats think it should be a priority. Huh. On the other hand, Democrats think and climate change should be a top priority, but only 1% of Republicans do. So wow. very far apart on their concerns, which makes compromise all the more difficult. That's right. And we've also heard so much after these midterm elections about what the results mean for President Biden. And for that matter, former President Trump, who has already announced that he's running again. What does the poll say about how people feel about them? Well, neither of them have the majority support of potential voters in their respective primaries. Majorities say they'd prefer to have someone else. And yet both are the front runners still at this point to get the nominations again. Biden, for example, has just 35 percent who say that they'd prefer that he ran in 2024 as their standard bearer. But they don't seem to love any of the other alternatives. You know, Vice President Kamala Harris, for example, gets just 17 percent. Pete Buttigieg, the transportation secretary, gets only 16 percent on the Republican side, despite all the buzz around Florida Governor Ron DeSantis. And it is very real. You know, Republican primary voters say they'd prefer Trump over DeSantis, 46 to 33 percent, with former Vice President Pence getting just 8 percent. So it really just shows that like in 2016, a crowded field really is Trump's best friend. And that is a big thing that a lot of people are pointing to, even as Republican primary voters continue to say that they're unsure of Trump and that he maybe doesn't have the best political skills or help the party in the last few elections. That's NPR's Domenico Montanaro. Thank you. You're welcome. Okay, I've been guest hosting Morning Edition all week. I normally cover Central Europe for NPR. And I brought back a little sample of what life is like there. This time of year, Christmas markets are everywhere. On the edge of Berlin, there's an 18th century Baroque palace. It was once the summer residence of Prussian kings, but today it's filled with the scents of grilled bratwurst, mulled wine, and the sound of a small brass band. This is the Charlottenburg Palace Christmas Market. It's one of dozens of so-called Weihnachtsmarks that are sprinkled throughout Berlin. 
This time of year, low, dark clouds obscure a sun that sets in the mid-afternoon. These neighborhood markets are like splashes of bright color on an otherwise film noir canvas. When it starts to snow and gets cold and dark, these markets lift my mood. Wanri Woof is here to catch up with an old co-worker. For years, they worked at Tropical Islands, an indoor water park outside Berlin. It used to be a Zeppelin hangar used by the Nazis 85 years ago. Now, it's a family resort with palm trees where the thermostat is always set to 80 degrees. Wolf grew up in Thailand. The tropical heat and man-made beaches of the water park made her feel at home during Berlin winters. The pandemic impacted business and Wolf changed jobs this year. Like many here, she's re-emerging from lockdown. This is one of the first Christmas markets she's been to in years, and it's accompanied by a little sticker shop. When I used to come here, the blue wine was always four and a half euros, but now it's seven. The whole world has suddenly become expensive because of the war. Everything has changed. Christmas market vendor Anastasia Benkovska knows this better than most here. She's making borscht inside her hut. It's built to look like a gingerbread house. A sign behind her reads, Ukrainian Kitchen. Venkovska arrived to Berlin Central Station after a three-day journey from Kyiv. She came by foot, bus, car, and train last February, shortly after Russia invaded. She studied German for years and is now using it daily to sell Ukrainian goodies, sending the proceeds back home. And then I'm writing to all my family. Hello, how are you? Check, 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 you know. This is her morning routine, checking on each family member back home to see if they're still alive. Anastasia, everything okay? We are here, don't worry. That sounds really stressful to me. It is, it is. But Ukraine will win, goodness will win, you know. And you're fighting with food. Mm-hmm. And Benkovska's hut is filled with food. That looks really good to me. What is that? This is a meat like shashlik. Yeah, yeah, yeah. This is a special Ukrainian um, dumplings, yep. really, I, I would say, what, with what, potato. What, what is this called in uh, Ukrainian? Vareniki. Okay. And also we have some schnapps. This Aha. is gorilka, this is hot. And we make it with chili or with honey uh, or with, I don't know, it's like... Um, in German, horseradish. You actually have a horseradish schnapps. Yeah. For yeah, yeah. Ukrainian, it's some drink to burn. So if the schnapps doesn't burn you enough, the horseradish will just make sure that it, it yeah. finishes the job. <laughs> One must follow Ukrainian tradition, so I drink the horseradish schnapps. All right, cheers. Budmo. Budmo. And as advertised, it burns. Whoa. Okay. That's uh. Wow, that's actually, um, I kind of like that. The fire in my gut slowly fizzles, but the gentle warmth of its embers remains. It's an antidote to the cold, just like this Berlin Christmas market. This is NPR News. I'm Rupa Shanoi in Boston. Coming up on Morning Edition, puppets bring the novel Life of Pi to life on stage in Cambridge and the U.S. premiere of the play. And in our next hour, Oregon Governor Kate Brown explains why she commuted the sentences of everyone on the state's death row.
In your forecast, high winds and low 40s today under cloudy skies. There's a slight chance of rain this afternoon, upper 30s tonight, and the rain may start overnight. Showers are possible all day tomorrow, and it'll still be windy. Temperatures will be in the mid-40s. Right now, it's 37 degrees in Boston at 743. We're funded by you, our listeners, and by Fidelity Investments, reminding you it's never too early to start saving for your child's future. Learn more about a tax-advantaged 529 college savings account and how you can use the money to pay for qualified expenses at fidelity.com slash ufund. Fidelity Brokerage Services, LLC. Member NYSE SIPC. Now in business news, Mass Development CEO Dan Rivera will continue to lead the agency for at least another three years. The board of the State Economic Development Finance Agency approved his contract extension yesterday. Rivera was appointed to the role by Governor Baker last year. His contract was set to expire in June. The extension means he'll continue serving under the incoming governor, Maura Healy. The Massachusetts Convention Center Authority is looking at ways to bring new businesses to the seaport. The Boston Globe reports the authority wants to sell its development rights to three mostly empty areas on D Street. It hopes to have proposals in by next week. It's 744. Funding for WBUR's business report comes from Cambridge Trust, a private bank offering a full suite of custom financial solutions tailored to its clients. Their team provides private banking, wealth management, and commercial and innovation banking designed to power any ambition. You can visit their offices or connect online at cambridgetrust.com slash waytowealth. This is WBUR's Morning Edition. I'm Rupa Shanoi. The American Repertory Theater in Cambridge has created a menagerie on stage for the U.S. premiere of Life of Pi. The play is adapted from Jan Martel's best-selling novel about Pi, a teenager who recounts being stranded on a lifeboat with animals from his family's zoo. In this production, those animals are puppets. WBUR's Andrea Shea explains how a team brings them to life. Meet Orange Juice, or OJ for short. She's life-size, so she's almost a five-foot-tall when she stood up, which means that she's quite a lot to manage. Co-puppet designer and movement director Finn Caldwell says it takes three people to manipulate the gangly orangutan's head, torso, and limbs. On stage, the puppeteers hold and embody her stylized, bright orange form. It's like a sculpture, but engineered with handles, internal rods, and bungee cords that mimic ligaments. In action, Caldwell says OJ's legs and hands become extended of the puppeteers. When I ask her hand to touch your face, I can touch your face with the same gentility and expressiveness that I can touch it with a human hand, so I can get really detailed, beautiful, and emotional movement out of her. A team of eight puppeteers lift, crouch, and trot other large zoo animals to life, including a zebra, hyenas, and the beast Pi spends months with at sea on a small boat. His frenemy has an amusing name. This is my boat, Richard Parker. On this show, the big need is the tiger has to be really scary. Can we make it fast enough to be really frightening to this boy and to the audience? That's puppeteer Fred Davis's physically demanding job. I think it's very easy with puppetry to make it cuddly and friendly and almost disnified. 
I'd say the key to a character like Richard Parker is to play the danger of that animal as much as you can. Davis has been doing that since this production's 2019 UK debut. Now he's playing Richard Parker's head as part of a highly choreographed puppeteering trio. I'm not going to lie, it's hard to get that connection with those two other people to make one large creature. So we did lots of research of how exactly they move. And how they sound, because the puppeteers working the heads also deliver something like lines. So this is Richard Parker. But human vocal cords and chest cavities don't deliver the menacing resonance of a real tiger's roars. During the performance, sound designer Carolyn Downing's team boosts Davis's vocalizations. We can play with things like pitch shifting and effects and reverb to kind of enhance that. We're in partnership in that process. Music also drives the emotion in Life of Pi. It's film composer Andrew T. Mackay's first play. That element of movement that, where you've got that marriage of sound, music and the puppetry was really exciting because I hadn't experienced that. I've written for humans, not for animals, not even done any wildlife shows or anything like that before. So, and this was something otherworldly, certainly when you see Richard Parker for the first time. That happens early in the play at the family zoo. The big cat emerges to eat a goat named Buckingham. <laughs> And Downing says all of the elements in that scene come together, like an orchestra. The tiger leaps and it almost slows down cinematically and there's kind of big drums and drama. The puppeteers are in full view throughout the performance. Caldwell says that's part of the magic. And it's real magic as opposed to illusion. We're not trying to trick you or convince you that this thing is alive. Actually, what we're saying is, look, we're doing this thing, and the skill that you're seeing performed in front of you makes you join in this game and think that this thing is alive. But there is a risk that these dazzling puppets could overshadow the human characters on stage. Puppeteer Fred Davis says it's a delicate dance. You have to be very well behaved. Otherwise, the actors could very rightly get quite annoyed that uh, we're just stealing the scene. Richard Parker's roars and some contented chuffs will be on stage at the ART through January 29th before heading to Broadway in March. For 90.9 WBUR, I'm Andrea Shea. I'm Rupa Shinoy in Boston. Another hour of Morning Edition is coming up, and later today at 11 is Radio Boston. Tiziana Deering is here to give us a preview of the show. Good morning, Tiziana. Happy Friday Eve. Friday Eve, that's right. And I was just listening to that, Rupa, and realizing that I would like my life to be full of contented chuffs. Yes, I love that word, I chuffs. know, right? Yeah. That is going to be a new life goal. I want contented chuffs in my life <laughs> on a daily basis. I love Andrea's reporting. Um, so uh, right now, uh, Governor-elect Maura Healey has a whole bunch of transition teams that are running. Transportation, housing, climate, health. These are things that really 
affect our daily lives mm-hmm. in terms of the decisions and the policies that get made. But it's really hard to see into those teams, who's on them, what's happening. So we have pulled together members of transition teams from the past two administrations, Baker and Patrick, to say, okay, how does this really work? Who are they listening to? Does the governor really listen to them? How important are the recommendations that they make? Right? How can we get a handle on a whole group of people that are building the business of a new government? I love that. You guys really don't take it easy at Radio Boston. You don't try those really easy topics. <laughs> we do sometimes, but also the good stuff. All right. Thank you, Tiziana. <laughs> Thanks, Rupa. That's Radio Boston today at 11 and 3. It's 7.51. Support for NPR comes from this station and from Avalara, sales tax automation for businesses of all sizes, designed to simplify sales tax compliance with real-time rates and automatic filing. Learn more at avalara.com. And from Procter & Gamble, maker of Z-Quill Pure Z's gummies, designed with melatonin for occasional sleeplessness to help people fall asleep naturally. Learn more at zquill.com. And from listeners like you who donate to this NPR station. It's Morning Edition from NPR News. I'm e. Martinez. I'm Rob Schmitz. And I'm Rachel Martin here with Morning Edition poet-in-residence Kwame Alexander. He has done his thing and made a beautiful year-end community poem. Kwame, happy holidays. Indeed, it is a happy holiday. And what better way to celebrate this season than by celebrating our pets? Or or rather, your pet, Rachel, because I don't have one yet. (laughs) Okay, so... We had so many responses, 700 responses from listeners who wrote poems from the point of view of their dogs, their cats, their rabbits, their goldfish, so many pets. And there were submissions from poets ages 6 to 86, like really heartwarming stuff. Rachel, shall we hop right into it, climb into this magic? Giddy up. Yeah, let's do it. Here we go. Hi, my name is Larry Longshanks. And for my folks, I give thanks. My name is Leo, and I am a dog. Once I was let outside. Oh, my God, that's my dog on the window. Hold on. I have to let her in. Hold on. (laughs) Sorry. She clearly wanted to be part of the poem. She's like, why didn't I get to make a submission? Okay, I'm picking it up. My name is Leo, and I am a dog. Once I was let outside to almost eat a frog. Fluffy the preschool hamster. I am the sixth to bear the name. I try to live my life with dignity and grace resigned to my fate. But someday, when one of them takes me home, I swear I will make my escape. It's dark and cold. I can hear the other prisoners barking. I don't begrudge you that last trip to the vet four days ago. The women fed me remarkable treats. (laughs) My needs are so few. Food, water, toys, and outdoors. A clean litter box. I'm a stinky dog. I lick, jump, eat everything. I sniff, I pee, I smell every tree. Who was here before? Sharp and soft in your residential jungle. Dear captor, I listen to your whispering eyelash and your swishing pulse. But I hear beyond, scraping step of ladybug, a moth's powdery wing, delicate spider dances. You talk, I wonder. Would you notice each sky if I weren't there to get you outside? I can't tell you about my life before. Just as well. I don't want you to be sad. Despite her many clocks, the woman forgot the hour constantly, always saying, it's not time yet, when clearly my bowl was empty and I was perishing before her eyes. Dad threatened to make me into a stew, then came back with carrot tops and treats anew. 
And those boys were so loud, always stomping and screaming. We wished them to be quiet so we could go back to dreaming. They got to eat biscuits and gravy. All we ever got were dried flakes. We would have loved something more tasty, like some potato pancakes. Now I am partnered with a foolish woman who doesn't understand that threats are everywhere. She naively walks past dogs who might lunge up and rip into her throat. She ignores plastic bags dancing in the wind that can cover her face as she fights for breath. She doesn't run very fast. She always hears the mailman last, and I don't think her sense of smell is working very well. She walks on clumsy feet. Her head floats in the air. She can't meow and has no fur and doesn't seem to care that when she sings her nonsense words and baby talks my name, I look at her politely, then must close my eyes in shame. She calls me wiggle butt and buggy <laughs> and cuddle bug, little one, love bug, herkajerk, Hercules. At this point, I just come to anything because it might mean food or treats or walk or cuddles. Curled up like a donut, I wait patiently for my family. I will spend my life keeping her safe. It is the burden I bear. Once wild and free, now safe and sound. In a new home, joy and love have been found. Gone are the days of hunting and fear. Now a life of comfort and cheer. Thank you, kind soul, for giving a chance. This lap-seeking freaky in the best way love pillow stands, sits, lies ready to serve you. I humbly suggest that you toss aside your tiresome worries along with my worn-out tennis balls. Come join me in a communal sofa soft delight. I'm here to listen to your every thought, wish, dream. I am, however, worried sometimes that you have forgotten about dinner. I never forget about dinner. Today I won an apple for a prize, for jumping the best. Next, I go back to my stall to rest. Eventually, it's lunchtime. My dinner is gone. Oh, woe is me. I ate it all so greedily. I yowl with grief, impossible to ignore, but my people will not give me more. No crunchy kibble, no tasty bits. It's enough to give me fits. When my water bowl is dry, I think that I will surely die. But when mom pets my ears, I forget all my fears. You're home, you're home. You were gone and I thought the wait would never end. How long has it been? A minute, an hour, a day, a week? I gotta go. I gotta go. I gotta go. What is it about this he doesn't understand? I am being clear here about my needs. Why doesn't he get the leash? For 15 years, you've given me such cozy nests, although I can no longer leap tall fences or even get on the couch or bring late night comatose possums in to wake up on your rug. I still love the days of warm sunshine and evenings where we gaze into each other's eyes from my comfy orthopedic bed. She says I'm an angel in fur coat that I carry her heart in mine. I don't know what that means. What I do know is that you love me from the minute you rescued me. Running away scares you to death, but I cannot help it. I am full of sass and argumentative. Your right arm is now longer than your left from five years of pulling on lead. I get overwhelmed with excitement when we have company. I cannot help myself when the resident squirrel runs our fence line. I'm addicted to butter. It makes you laugh when I come from behind, between your knees, and look up at you. You are happy and content when we're together. One day, dear human, I will write for you a tome. For now, you will have to make do with this poem. You live for me and me alone. Hey, where's my bone? <laughs> <laughs> oh, that was so great. That was so fun. I don't... <laughs> 
Lola's sitting in the corner. I don't know if she knows what to make of that poem, but I really liked it. That was great. It was good. It's just what we needed to round out the year and start the new one. So much fun, funniness. Yeah, yeah, totally. Kwame Alexander, the number one New York Times bestselling author of An American Story and Morning Edition poet in residence. Thank you, Kwame. Happy holidays. Here's to more poetry and pets and my dear friend Rachel Martin next year. (laughs) Thank you. It's Morning Edition from NPR News. I'm Rachel Martin. I'm Rob Schmitz. And I'm A. Martinez. We're funded by you, our listeners, and by Cityside Subaru on Route 60 in Belmont, celebrating this season of giving with Subaru's Share the Love event through January 2nd. And Cambridge School of Culinary Arts in Porter Square, with cooking and baking workshops, technique and regional cuisine series, and cooking couples classes. CambridgeCulinary.com. I'm evening host Garo Hagopian, and this is 90.9 WBUR-FM Boston, 92.7 WBUA-Tisbury, and 89.1 WBUH-Brewster. Listen anytime with our app or at WBUR.org. WBUR, Boston's NPR news station. In response to slowing inflation, federal officials raise interest rates by less than expected, but signal that interest rate hikes will continue. It's Thursday, December 15th. This is WBUR's Morning Edition. Good morning, I'm Rupa Shanoi. Coming up, COVID-19 is surging in China with the number of cases increasing at a very high rate. In the US, the early, early 2020, the doubling time was like one week. Now in China, the doubling time is like hours. Also this hour, the governor of Oregon has commuted the sentences of all the people on the state's death row. And President Biden hosts African leaders in an attempt to repair relations that suffered under former President Trump. This forum is about building connections. It's about closing deals. And above all, it's about the future, our shared future. Plus, Peru's president has declared a state of emergency. Cloudy, windy, and low 40s today. It's 8.01. Now the news. Live from NPR News, I'm Corva Coleman. A new NPR PBS NewsHour Marist poll out today finds that Americans want members of Congress to compromise. But as NPR's Domenico Montanaro explains, they're not confident that lawmakers will do that. Washington is headed to divided government in just a few weeks, and 74% say they want their leaders to compromise. That's the highest percentage to say so in a decade. But 58% say they have no confidence that Congress will come together. When that question was asked in 2008, less than a quarter of people said they had no confidence. But people have grown more pessimistic of their leaders and with good reason. Since that time, the parties have dug in, become more polarized, more ideologically cohesive, and there are fewer swing districts in the country overall. So the incentives aren't very strong in favor of compromise, even though that's what the overwhelming majority of Americans say they want. Domenico Montanaro, NPR News, Washington. The Senate is expected to take up a short-term spending bill today that will fund the federal government through the end of next week. The House has already passed this bill. It is needed before this Friday's deadline, or the government will partially shut down. The measure is a stopgap and keeps the government operating while negotiators put the finishing touches on a more comprehensive spending plan. Lawmakers say they're close to agreement on that. 
A huge and deadly storm crossing the U.S. has spawned tornadoes. Three people have been killed in Louisiana. Lindsay Rosinet was south of Lafayette, Louisiana. He was bringing a friend to a hospital for treatment. We knew the weather was going to be bad. We didn't think a tornado was going to come. And we were on the second floor when we were watching news when the tornadoes merged. And within two minutes, it was here. The same system is also bringing blizzard and winter storm conditions from Nebraska to Michigan. There are more winter storm warnings and advisories posted from Virginia to New England. Bad actors are turning to computer-generated faces in their attempts to manipulate social media networks. NPR's Shannon Bond reports it's easier than ever to use artificial intelligence to create fake accounts on sites like Facebook. Facebook parent Meta says more than two-thirds of the influence operations it took down this year used computer-generated profile pictures. The technology to make these fakes has become widely available. Ben Nimmo investigates threats at Meta. They've probably thought, this is a good way to hide because I'm not stealing somebody else's profile picture. I'm downloading a new one from a website and it's a person who doesn't exist, therefore there's nobody who's going to complain about it and people won't be able to find it the same way. Fake faces have been used to push Russian and Chinese propaganda on Facebook and Twitter and marketing scams on LinkedIn. Meta says it's part of how threat actors operate across the Internet, including on smaller social media upstarts and popular petition websites. Shannon Bond, NPR News. On Wall Street and pre-market trading, stocks are sharply lower. This is NPR. From WBOR in Boston, I'm Rupa Shanoi. Hospitals are struggling to keep up with the crush of kids needing treatment for respiratory infections such as RSV and the flu. Now, data from the Massachusetts Health Policy Commission show there are fewer pediatric care options and that the care is getting more expensive. WBUR's Priyanka Dayal McCluskey reports. Most of the state's health care for children is now dominated by two big systems, Mass General Brigham and Boston Children's Hospital. The commission's Sasha Hayes-Rusnoff says a concentrated market means many families have to drive farther and pay more for care. The challenge is to you know, figure out how to promote affordable access to high-quality care in uh, increasingly concentrated market and one that is rapidly changing. The new analysis was released the same day that state officials approved a request by Boston Children's to spend $435 million to expand in the suburbs. For 90.9 WBUR, I'm Priyanka Dayal McCluskey. Boston should avoid any snow with a storm moving in tonight. The Berkshires, meanwhile, could get as much as a foot. The near miss has Boston officials checking on their preparations for when snow does arrive, and the city says it's still a little short on in house snowplow drivers. Mike Broll is superintendent of Boston Street Operations. We are having a tougher time finding full-time employees here. Um, with the um, work of the mayor and some other team members, we've been we've been trying to uh, find ways to kind of incentivize, find different ways to draw folks in. Um, we are having those conversations daily. The city has 170 pieces of its own snow removal equipment. Private contractors provide another 800. A Berkeley College of Music student is facing charges. He harassed someone who put up flyers on campus in support of democracy in China. Investigators say the student is a Chinese citizen. They say he contacted the person over multiple social media platforms. He also threatened to contact China's security agency. He could face up to five years in prison if convicted.
Several U.S. lawmakers are sticking up for the state's signature crop, the cranberry. The group is led by Congressman Bill Keating. It wants the Food and Drug Administration to broaden its proposed definition of the term healthy. The FDA is considering a ban on on putting the healthy label on dried fruits with added sugars. But Keating argues, according to the FDA's own research, adding sugar doesn't make cranberries less healthy than other fruits. You have certain fruits that commercially you need some sugar or they're not marketable because they're so bitter. And so the amount of sugar that's put in, for instance, is less than what's in an orange. Massachusetts is the second biggest producer of cranberries in the country, behind only Wisconsin. It's 8.07. We're funded by you, our listeners, and by ThoughtForms, custom builders of high-performance, healthy homes and places that strengthen our communities, supporting Climate Interactive's mission to help people everywhere create a sustainable and equitable future with their online climate solution simulator, climateinteractive.org and thoughtforms-corp.com. Tonight at the Garden, the Bruins take on the Los Angeles Kings. And in your forecast, cloudy with a slight chance for rain this afternoon. It'll be in the lower 40s. More rain and wind overnight. Temperatures around 40. Tomorrow, rain east of 495. The Worcester area should get less than an inch of snow. It'll be in the 30s and 40s. It should dry out by Saturday afternoon. Right now, it's 38 degrees in Boston at 807. WBUR supporters include DuckDuckGo, a company committed to making privacy online simple. DuckDuckGo's app includes a private search engine, web browser, and email protection with one download. More at DuckDuckGo.com. This is Morning Edition from NPR News. I'm Rob Schmitz in Washington, D.C. And I'm Martinez in Culver City, California. China appears to be facing what could be the world's largest coronavirus outbreak yet. The country recently rolled back its zero COVID policy, but the World Health Organization says the explosion in cases began before restrictions were lifted. China's health officials say it's possible that up to 800 million people will become infected in the next few months. It's a dramatic change for residents after three years of strict testing and lockdowns. 27-year-old Alan Wu, who lives in Beijing, says three weeks ago he didn't know anyone in China who'd ever tested positive for COVID. But a few days ago, he was infected, and he's not alone. I would say two-thirds of the people I know in Beijing are infected right now. The whole city is, like, deserted. Wu says the outbreak has made daily life more difficult because so many workers are sick, and Beijing's famously quick deliveries take much longer now. You will wait two or three hours to get, you know, a bag of vegetable. I mean, it used to take like 10 minutes or 15 minutes. He doesn't think the Chinese health system is prepared. He's heard from friends waiting in long lines in the cold to get medicine. This is the capital of China. Like, you know, getting medicine shouldn't be that difficult. Here to tell us more about what's going on is NPR's global health correspondent, Michael Duclef. Uh, nearly 800 million people, uh, Michael, affected in China. I mean, we're talking about, what, 90 days? That sounds crazy. Yes, you know, that's roughly 10% of the planet's population getting infected in this super short period of time. I spoke to Xi Chen. He's a global health researcher at Yale University. He says predictions from Chinese scientists are quite dire. Like uh, recently, the deputy director of China CDC Feng Zijian, who is a good friend of mine, and he was announcing through the public media that uh, the first wave may infect around like 60% of the population. We haven't seen anything like this yet. Uh, You know, these numbers are big, but interestingly, official numbers out of China show cases declining there. Okay, how is that possible? 
Yeah, so China has changed how it tracks cases. It has stopped reporting asymptomatic cases, and it has also stopped a lot of testing. But I was talking to an epidemiologist at the University of Hong Kong, Ben Cowling, and he said cases are actually skyrocketing in many parts of China. Right, in Beijing, there's already a load of cases and, and other major cities because it's spreading so fast. It's just extremely transmissible. Cowling says the virus is spreading faster in China than it spread basically ever before anywhere during this pandemic. So any idea what's going on? A new variant, maybe? Yeah, so the variants in China are not particularly unique. They are versions of Omicron, and we have the same ones and similar ones right here in the U.S., but they aren't spreading lightning fast like they are in China. And the difference is immunity. China's population has very little immunity to COVID because the vast majority of people have never been infected. Until recently, China has focused on massive quarantines, testing, and travel restrictions to keep the virus mostly out. So with variants that came before Omicron, China prevented most people from getting infected. But that means that now nearly 1.4 billion people in the country are susceptible to an infection. So it's really that much more contagious? In China, it is. Um, scientists like Cowling use something called an R factor to estimate how contagious a pathogen is. Basically, it tells you how many people one sick person is going to infect on average. So during the Omicron surge here in the U.S., the R factor was about eight. Each person who was sick spread it to about eight more people. Cowling says that in China right now, the R factor is a whopping 16. This is a really high level of transmissibility. You know, in the U.S., the early 2020, the doubling time was like one week. Now in China, the doubling time is like hours. Wow, doubling in less than a day. I mean, can hospitals handle this? You know, Chen at Yale University says that is the big question right now. Most of the cases are expected to be mild or moderate, but there are about 11 million people at high risk for severe COVID. And Chen says that in most of the country, there are still way too few ICU beds to handle this. Many, many models now are predicting that perhaps a half a million people could die, perhaps many more. But Chen also told me that number depends a lot on people's behavior, you know, whether people at high risk continue to quarantine voluntarily and how well the healthcare system does hold up under this pressure. He says it is going to be a huge test for China's healthcare system. Yeah, you know, earlier you said that the same variants are spreading in the U.S. Are we going to see another massive surge this winter? Uh, you know... The population here, Aegis, has an enormous amount of immunity from all the previous surges and vaccines. So we are going to see cases rise here, no doubt, but but not like anything we've seen before, I think. NPR Global Health Correspondent Michaeline Duclef, thanks a lot. Thank you so much. Oregon's outgoing Democratic Governor Kate Brown took the extraordinary step this week of removing 17 people from death row. They will now serve life in prison with no chance of parole. The governor, who is serving her final weeks in office, says her decision had nothing to do with these prisoners rehabilitating themselves. Instead, Brown says she commuted their sentences because she believes the death penalty is immoral. Governor Kate Brown joins us now. Thanks so much for being on the program. Thank you, Rachel, for having me. The people whose sentences you commuted were convicted of taking lives, of murder. How do you balance your moral position on the death penalty with the wishes of their victims' families and the sentences that were rendered by a court of law. These are horrific and heinous crimes. But unfortunately, the death penalty is immoral. Justice is not advanced by taking a life. And the state should not be in the business of executing people. 
even if a horrible, horrible crime or crimes placed them in prison. The death penalty also has never been administered fairly, consistently, or equitably in Oregon, or frankly, across the United States. And what we know is that across the entire country, the death penalty has been disproportionately imposed upon people of color and people with mental illness. And lastly, the death penalty doesn't serve its intended purpose. It is an irreversible punishment that doesn't allow for correction. It is a waste of taxpayer dollars, and it doesn't make our communities safer. Why did you have to wait to the end of your term to do this if it was something that you held with such conviction? When I took office in 2015, I was very clear with Oregonians about my personal opposition to the death penalty, and I continued Oregon's moratorium on executions, which was implemented by my predecessor in 2011. In 2019, I signed into law Senate Bill 1013, which restricted the crimes that were eligible for the death penalty. And under my direction in 2020, the Department of Correction dissolved the death row housing in their facilities. It's certainly unacceptable to me that I would leave office without taking one final action to ensure that none of these individuals will be executed by the state. You've worked on this issue for a long time. You granted clemency to more than 1,000 people. You faced a lot of legal action as a result. Are you confident that these 17 commutations will be upheld in court? Yes, there was a recent Court of Appeals case restating that the governor's authority in the state of Oregon under the Oregon Constitution is extremely broad. And his or her ability to issue commutations, pardons, remissions of fines and reprieves is subject to the governor's executive authority. That's not unusual. I think many states have similar commutation authorities within their governor's hands. Capital punishment is still legal, though, in the state of Oregon. How do you respond to critics who say, this may be your moral judgment, but you took this step with no mandate from Oregonians? I was elected by a majority of Oregonians, and I know that they share my values, that the death penalty is both dysfunctional and immoral. It is applied inequitably, and it absolutely does not make sense. And I will say that Oregonians have elected time and time again governors that oppose the death penalty. Governor Kate Brown, Democrat of Oregon, we appreciate your time. Thank you so much. Thank you so much, Rachel. The commission that regulates California's utilities decides today whether to cut a key incentive for rooftop solar. California is considered the bellwether for the nation's energy policy, and some environmentalists worry that this decision could make it harder to transition away from fossil fuels. Here's NPR's Julia Simon. California decided decades ago that to get more solar energy, they needed to pay people for their solar power. If you end up with more solar power than you can use, you can sell that back to the grid. With the current pricing plan, the utility pays you for the power basically the same amount that you pay it. One of the people benefiting from this setup is music teacher Carolyn McDaniels in San Francisco. How did it change my bill? Oh my God. When you get a bill that says no payment necessary, that's how it changed my bill. The vote by the California Utilities Commission comes down to how much new solar customers will get in the future. Today, commissioners could cut those incentive payments. 
It is a cliff. It's what you would do if you wanted to hurt something. You would slash it like that. Bernadette Del Chiaro runs the California Solar and Storage Association. She says the proposal immediately reduces average payments around 75%. She worries the incentive cut will mean people won't think solar panels are worth the investment. But Matt Baker of the California Public Advocates Office supports the proposal and says the current incentive structure is now out of place. He says it played its part to get California to around 1.5 million homes with solar. We believe it worked. It worked really, really well. He says the new pricing mechanism will incentivize people to get big storage batteries along with solar, what he says California's grid needs. But Del Chiaro says it will be hard to incentivize batteries if you're making solar more expensive. Ultimately, she thinks this incentive cut will threaten the growth of the largest solar market in America. We're supposed to set the pace and set the example she says other states are watching California's vote today. Julia Simon, NPR News. This is NPR News. This is 90.9 WBUR. I'm Rupa Shanoi. Coming up on Morning Edition, we visit a museum that gathers objects from migrants who died trying to cross the Mediterranean. And in 20 minutes, the government of Peru has declared a state of emergency in response to violent protests over the ouster of the previous president. It's 820. I'm Scott Simon. Are you thinking about trading in your car? Why not donate it? to this station instead. We'll turn it into the programs you love. Just go to WBUR.org. We're funded by you, our listeners, and by Cambridge Trust, a private bank offering a full suite of custom financial solutions tailored to its clients. Their team provides private banking, wealth management, and commercial and innovation banking designed to power any ambition. You can visit their offices or connect online at cambridgetrust.com slash waytowealth. There is a bankruptcy tactic that shields executives from accountability. The tactic gives corporate leaders like the Sackler family and Harvey Weinstein immunity from lawsuits for life. Chapter 11 practice needs to be reined in because this is not supposed to be the Wild West. Should the common tactic be reined in, and if so, how? That's On Point this morning at 10 on 90.9 WBUR, Boston's NPR news station. With winter weather almost here, the city of Somerville is giving names to its snowplow fleet. The names were suggested by preschool and kindergarten students. This year's fleet includes Overdrive, Snow Sleeper, Snow Leopard, Caterpillar, and Keone. That's the Greek goddess of snow. In your forecast, cloudy and windy with a high near 42 today. There's a slight chance of rain this afternoon. Tonight, it stays relatively warm, falling to a low around 40. There's a chance of rain overnight and all day tomorrow. It'll still be windy. Temperatures will be in the mid-40s. Right now, it's 38 degrees in Boston at 821. Support for NPR comes from this station. And from Total Wine & More, where in-store teams can recommend a bottle of wine, spirit, or beer for any occasion. Learn more at TotalWine.com. Spirits not available in Virginia or North Carolina. And from Heather Sturt Haga and Paul G. Haga, supporting African Wildlife Foundation, working to ensure wildlife and wild lands thrive in modern Africa. 
Learn more at awf.org. And from Fisher Investments. Fisher Investments' team of specialists offer guidance on investing, retirement income, and Social Security. FisherInvestments.com. Investments in securities involve the risk of loss. It's Morning Edition from NPR News. I'm Rob Schmitz. I'm E. Martinez. And I'm Leila Faldin. The coastal city of Zarzis in southeast Tunisia is where Mahsin Lahidhib makes and displays his art. Through a blue door with two handwritten signs, one in French and one in Arabic that say museum, is a house filled with the things Lahidhib collected after the waves brought them to the shore. The rubbish from the sea is his medium. Cigarette pack. Everything. Tennis balls. I got everything. Oh, this is for pushpins, like a little rabbit for pushpins. Sea bottles, you know. Sea bottles. Did you ever, oh, wait, these are people's messages. But walk a little deeper inside and you see what it's really about. I mean, I see slippers and sneakers and little girls like pink slippers. Just tell me what these are. Outside, outside is the most important, you know. Oh, okay. Let's see. Oh my gosh. It looks like a graveyard of shoes. Yes, a graveyard, really, really a graveyard. An effective graveyard of the memory of the shoes. In the backyard, piles of shoes are arranged in a huge circle. Works of literature scattered throughout by Nietzsche, Jack London. Glass bottles and buoys are placed all around the yard. A child's jacket hangs on a wall next to the words of an Egyptian poem turned song. Why does the sea laugh? Everything is coming from the sea. I began this action in 1993. I was 40 years old, and then I said, enough. I would not belong anymore to smoking, drinking, tea, coffee, everything. Just getting back my freedom, my total freedom. Mm -hmm. I began to gather everything, you know, what comes with the waves. With the time, they gave me uh, some uh, lecture. So I began to make configurations, you know. So they were telling you a story. Yeah, my story about the sea memory, about the sea memory. At the same time, I, I, I've been working at the post. At the post office? Post office, yes. Okay. And in the post office, I'm doing so, gathering uh, letters, sorting them, and then distributing them. And what I did at the sea, spontaneously, I gathered all what brings the sea, I sort it artistically, and I distribute it as an artistic product, you know. If I could ask you, what's the importance of displaying what the waves brought to the shore? You know, we're looking at all these shoes that maybe we don't know who they belong to, but yeah. it was somebody in the sea. Yeah. Uh, what does it say about people trying to leave? You know, what is the message? In 1995, I began the human ecology. That means that I found in that time shoes and clothes from those going from Libya to Italy. Mm-hmm. And that when they were drowned, I found uh, so clothes. What have you seen that's changed over these many years? And I'm wondering what you're seeing in the last year that maybe is different. No, what changed is that in the beginning it was only from Tripoli, but then it began to, to, to go from Tunisia, you know. 
and in the last times there are also families going there are uh, so civil servants there uh, have been a chief in, in the post office and many of my employees went with their family but there what i mean with the books the migration of intellectuals of doctors of everything so uh, That's so why you have the books yeah this uh, sea of shoes that we're looking at in front of us how many years of shoes is that size 95 1995. What's the most recent? The most recent is this one, the red one. It's uh, in the 24th uh, September. It was just after the drama of Zarzis. He's talking about what's known as the tragedy in Zarzis. A boat with 18 Tunisians sank off the coast trying to get to Italy. Most of the bodies have not been recovered. You so know. these are Nike red and black sneakers? Yeah. Red, red and black, uh, black 45. 45, That's so the size? size? I don't know. I am maybe 70% sure that it belongs to them. Uh, they are very important for me because they are the, the prince of the suffering of those people, you know. We are already world citizens, you know. And hiding himself behind identity or behind the language of her border or our wall, uh, it will not uh, serve for a long time, you know. You believe that borders should be open so that people can go and yes, come? Yes, yes. Maybe it will take some time, but the aim and the direction will be uh, that. There is something very, very powerful about this configuration, that when you walk out, you feel like it's a graveyard. Yes, a graveyard. Sometimes I found in the shoes some money. So money, so somebody's tucked money into their because shoes the most, to keep it the safe. Most of them, they put them in the shoes. There are so many stories in these shoes. There's well, a lot, a lot, because I, I tried always to be able to read what they contain. I don't know if you saw the dress of uh, the red dress of the no, young girl. Should we go look at it? Yeah. Oh wow! So it's a little coat with a, a, a little coat. With a bunny. So design. automatically, I, I was angry. So uh, I put it on uh, on the car, on a big trunk of a tree, and I make uh, her procession of life that she missed, the joy of her life that she missed. Mm. So I made a big wedding for her, and I brought it here to to the museum and made a memorial for her. So this is your guest book. Yeah, uh, the guest book, yes. <laughs> What a powerful tribute to migrants and the human will that you have assembled here, Claire. September 2020. A tribute built over 30 years, and in the days ahead, he'll return to the shore to search for whatever else the waves bring. This is NPR News. This is 90.9 WBUR. I'm Rupa Shanoi. Coming up on Morning Edition, as a summit of African leaders wraps up at the White House today, hopes that the U.S. has repaired relations that deteriorated under former President Trump. It's 829. 
We're funded by you, our listeners, and by Uncommon Feasts, catering diplomatic receptions, corporate celebrations, milestone events, and public galas in Boston, the North Shore, and Midcoast, Maine. Artisanal cuisine and a focus on logistics. Uncommonfeasts.com. Gather around. Let's feast. Live from NPR News in Washington, I'm Dave Mattingly. Iran is being expelled from the U.N.'s Women's Rights Commission. The resolution was drafted by the U.S. and follows the death of a woman while in custody of Iran's morality police for allegedly not wearing a headscarf properly. It also follows subsequent protests in Iran and a crackdown on demonstrators. Linda Thomas-Greenfield is the U.S. ambassador to the U.N. The United States has long stood for gender equality and basic human rights. We had to act. Iranian women have clearly called for us here at the United Nations to remove Iran from the Commission on the Status of Women. Iran's U.N. ambassador calls the move illegal. Benjamin Netanyahu is pledging to govern in the interests of all Israelis when he takes over as prime minister once again. Netanyahu's conservative Likud party finished first in last month's elections. In an interview with NPR's Morning Edition, Netanyahu defended his effort to form a government with far-right ultranationalists. He was also asked about political equity for Palestinians. The only peace that will hold is one that can, we can defend. And the one that we can defend is one in which the Palestinians have all the powers to govern themselves, but none of the powers to threaten our life. Netanyahu is Israel's longest-serving prime minister. This is NPR News. From WBUR in Boston, I'm Rupa Shanoi. The Massachusetts Medical Society is renewing its support for gender-affirming medical care. The move follows a number of recent threats to doctors who provide the care and to patients who seek it. Society President Dr. Ted Kalianos says gender-affirming care is backed up by science. As these patients are trying to access evidence-based care, uh, and in the course of uh, attempting to access evidence-based care, they're being faced with Uh, violence, verbal threats, threats of physical violence. The society also added new policies to raise awareness about racial and socioeconomic disparities in breast reconstruction following a mastectomy. Remote work options and job shortages in states with a better quality of life are driving people to move out of Massachusetts. That's according to a new report from the Massachusetts Taxpayers Foundation. It finds there are more than two jobs available for every one unemployed person in the state. The MTF says the state needs to bring down the cost of housing and improve transportation in order to attract the number of workers it needs. The U.S premiere of the award-winning play Life of Pi opens tonight at the American Repertory Theater in Cambridge. WBUR's Andrea Shea has more. Life of Pi is adapted from Jan Martel's acclaimed novel about a boy stranded on a lifeboat with animals from his family's zoo. At the ART, the story's fantastical zebras, hyenas, and tigers are huge puppets. Some require three puppeteers. Co-puppet designer and movement director Finn Caldwell has been with the production since it premiered in the UK in 2019. Now he hopes audiences here feel the creatures are real. 
And what I mean by that is I don't think you'll think they're real animals, but I think you'll think they're alive. I think you'll think they're alive. I think they're alive when I'm watching them, and I've worked with them for years and years and years. The Olivier Award-winning play is in Cambridge through January 29th. Then it heads to Broadway. For 90.9 WBUR, I'm Andrea Shea. It's 8.33. We are funded by you, our listeners, and by the Greater Boston Food Bank. Help put joy on every plate this holiday season. Donate at gbfb.org WBUR. The Bruins will be at home tonight to face the Los Angeles Kings. The Bees have won 13 of their last 16 games. Overcast today in the low 40s and with some high winds, we may see some showers this afternoon. Tonight, temperatures only fall a little to the upper 30s. Tomorrow, rainy and windy in the mid 40s. Right now, it's 38 degrees in Boston at 834. Support for NPR comes from this station and from Athena Health, creating connected healthcare technology designed to improve patient outcomes and increase efficiency of healthcare practices and organizations. Learn more at athenahealth.com. And from DuckDuckGo, a company committed to making privacy online simple. DuckDuckGo's app includes a private search engine, web browser, and email protection with one download. More at DuckDuckGo.com. This is NPR. This is Morning Edition from NPR News. I'm Rob Schmitz in Washington, D.C. And I'm A. Martinez in Culver City, California. President Biden is hosting African leaders this week during a summit intended to build stronger economic ties with the region, which has seen a lot of investment from China in recent years. In an address, Biden said yesterday his administration signed an agreement to support trade across the continent and invest in food, energy and health projects. He also announced new deals in the private sector totaling $15 billion. The deals you've signed, the investments we've made together are concrete proof of the enduring commitment we're making to one another. The last U.S.-Africa summit was held in 2014 when President Obama also promised a stronger economic partnership. Joining us now is Mbemba Pezo Dizolele, who is director of Africa Program at the Center for Strategic and International Studies. So let's start with last night, President Biden saying the U.S. is all in on Africa's future and announced several investments in Africa this week. That summit wraps up today. Mbemba, what do you think of the U.S. commitments? Uh, How do they stack up to you so far? Uh, This is a very important commitment on the part of the United States. The United States came to the summit with a trust deficit as far as Africa goes. This is a signal that the U.S. is committing itself to working with the people of Africa to move the relationship forward. As you know, the world is a multipolar world that we live in today with various interests and various powers competing for resources in Africa. The U.S. was lagging a bit behind, uh, behind China, behind Turkey, Russia, and others that are invested in Africa. So this is a good beginning. You called it a trust deficit. What do you mean by that? By that, I mean the U.S. as a superpower has been engaged in Africa for years, for decades, actually, you should say, since before independence. However, that engagement has not always been consistent. If a country has some issue, the U.S. may suspend its relationship. The U.S. may reduce its relationship. The U.S. may leave totally. 
where in fact African countries really have been thirsting for America's leadership and partnership. That has not always been there in the way, let's say, China has been consistent. Or even the French, who have a lot of difficult relationship with Africans, have been consistent. It's that consistency that has been lacking with the U.S. As you say, the last summit was eight years ago, yeah. 2014. That's about two mandate, two presidential mandate. That's not acceptable. And when you say partnership, economic partnership. Economic and across the board, you know, the world is facing a number of contingencies, including demographic pressures, including climate change, as we're talking about it, uh, these days. All those contingencies will be determined by what happens in Africa. You know, Africa is the youngest continent. The median age in Africa is 19. The median age in the U.S. is 38, 39. The median age in Germany is 49. So the future of the world is in Africa, and the U.S. need to be present. And China has invested in that future. They've spent, uh, what, $254 billion in trade uh, with the African continent. How much of a challenge does China present the U.S.? China presents tremendous challenge to the United States in, in, in the sense that China, it's a rising superpower. It's just a question of years before they come really neck to neck with the United States. However, Africa is a big place. 54 countries, tremendous resources, tremendous needs. So there's room for both powers to be there. They can even collaborate. It doesn't have to be competitive. It's not a Cold War. Uh, you know, the Africans have been handling foreign powers for 500 years. So this is not new to them. One more thing quickly. What do you think the U.S. can offer to African countries that maybe China and other countries cannot? It's the values that the U.S. Have been, has been pushing for over a year. Good governance, uh, strong democracy, social contract support. Those are the issues where the U.S. has competitive advantage. That is Mbemba Peso Dizolele. Thank you very much. Thank you. Protests continue in Peru over the removal of President Pedro Castillo a week ago. On Wednesday, Castillo's replacement, his former vice president, Dina Boluarte, declared a national emergency for 30 days to try to get things under control. At least seven people have died in the protests, which broke out shortly after Castillo was arrested on rebellion charges when he moved to disband the Congress, which was trying to impeach him for a third time. Associated Press reporter Regina Garcia Cano joins us this morning from Lima. Good morning, Regina. Good morning. Thank you for having me. So explain what this state of emergency is supposed to do. Sure. So the country's latest government has truly struggled to calm down this violent protest, particularly in rural areas that are far from the capital, Lima. So the declaration is meant to give the government the ability to act faster and with stronger force, right? So hmm. it suspends some of people's rights, including the ability to, to assemble, to protest, um, to move freely, so they can't really go out into the streets like, like they've done before. And it also gives some authorities the ability to search people's homes without permission or judicial order. And so that, that, that is key to this. And also the fact that the armed forces um, will begin to assist um, the national police in securing certain infrastructure like airports that, you know, some of which have been or have had to suspend activities because of the protests in the past few days. So police are now given the right to search people's homes when they want to? I mean, that sounds like just sweeping powers. Is there any way to tell so far whether this is having any effect on protests? 
I think we will really see that um, today. We can already see a military presence in certain areas where um, the protests have been particularly violent. But a test to this will, will really be today after you know, we hear the decision from a judge regarding Castillo's detention for, for possible detention for 18 months. What do you think we'll see today? I think, you know, yesterday when the hearing began, we were already seeing people assembling outside um, the jail where Castillo is being held. So, you know, it will likely happen again. He has called on his supporters to gather there. So um, I think that will truly be a test um, to see whether authorities will respond quickly and with with a stronger force than than they've had in the past. So Boluarte was Castillo's vice president, but the protesters want her out of office and Congress does not appear to have much confidence in her either. What's the outlook on her political prospects? Not great. Um, She's really going to have to work hard on um, getting along with Congress. She has no supporters um, at the moment, and so she will really have to work with them if she wants to to survive. Um, here, Congress does not hesitate to flex their impeachment powers. In 2020, the country had three presidents in one week. So it, it really will depend on her ability. That's Regina Garcia-Cano of the Associated Press. Thanks. Thank you. Later today on All Things Considered, we'll take stock of President Biden halfway through his term. Listen, ask your smart speaker to play NPR or your member station by name. This is NPR News. Coming up on Morning Edition, film critic Eric Deggins has his review of the new sequel to Avatar. In your forecast... High winds and low 40s today under cloudy skies. There's a slight chance of rain this afternoon. Upper 30s tonight and the rain may start overnight. Showers are possible all day tomorrow and it'll still be windy. Temperatures will be in the mid 40s. Hanukkah begins Sunday night, but it's getting an early start tonight at the MFA. Mark Baker is president and CEO of Combined Jewish Philanthropies. He says his organization is teaming up with the museum for an evening of art, music, and festivities. In the past, there's been thousands of families with young children touring the museum, doing Hanukkah activities, uh, and then there's a big public gathering um, also to celebrate a special Hanukkah art installation um, and then to light the candles together. Tonight's event takes place from 5 to 10. Right now it's 38 degrees in Boston at 843. We're funded by you, our listeners, and by the law firm of Nutter McLennan and Fish. Counsel to leading companies and institutions for more than a century. Client-focused, collaborative, this is Nutter. Online at Nutter.com. Now, in business news, the Massachusetts Museum of Contemporary Art in North Adams has reached a labor agreement with its union employees. It's taken a year. The deal raises the minimum wage from $15.50 an hour up to $16.25. Morrow Elliott is a MassMoCA employee and a member of the union's bargaining committee. MassMoCA said that they were unable to bring up that minimum, but... Also, as part of our contract agreement, we negotiated re-openers in the second and third years of our contract. The union can now renegotiate wages each December for the next two years. 
A Canadian startup with its U.S. headquarters in the Back Bay is getting $75 million to design a new way to kill cancerous tumors. Alpha 9 Theranostics says the investment will allow it to nearly triple its headcount from 15 to 45 employees by next year. It's 845. We're funded by you, our listeners, and by Fidelity Investments, reminding you it's never too early to start saving for your child's future. Learn more about a tax-advantaged 529 college savings account and how you can use the money to pay for qualified expenses at fidelity.com slash ufund. Fidelity Brokerage Services, LLC. Member NYSE SIPC. This is Morning Edition from NPR News. I'm E. Martinez. And I'm Rob Schmitz. Avatar, The Way of Water, hits theaters this weekend, poised to become one of the year's biggest film releases, a sequel to the 2009 film Avatar, the highest-grossing Hollywood film in history. The Way of Water connects all things. Before your birth. And after your death. But questions remain about this movie and the Avatar franchise. Why hasn't it attained the pop culture stature of Star Wars or Star Trek? And what about questions of cultural appropriation? Here with a few answers is NPR media analyst Eric Deggins. Hey, Eric. Hi. You've seen the movie. Can you tell us a bit about the story and why it's three hours and 12 minutes long? (laughs) Well, director and franchise creator James Cameron doesn't often make short movies. That's the short answer on that one. But, you know, those who know the original film are going to remember it's set in the future on a planet called Pandora. That's populated by these 10-foot-tall species called the Na'vi, who breathe an atmosphere that humans can't. And in the first film, we see humans put their consciousness inside bodies like the Na'vi. They're called avatars, if you get it. And by the end of the first movie, our hero, Jake Scully, a human played by Sam Worthington, helps stop these other humans that want to pillage the world of its natural resources. Now, in this new film, Scully's raised a family. He's settled into life within the Na'vi tribe. And the humans come back. They've got this special strike force to capture him. And as Jake and his family run to a new part of Pandora, we get to explore the world with them. We meet an entirely different kind of Navi tribe. And that's about all I can say without dropping major spoilers. (laughs) That's where you stop. Okay. So (laughs) the first film made nearly $3 billion. That's with a B. But it doesn't seem to have resonated in the zeitgeist like Star Wars or, or Star Trek. Uh, Do you agree, and do you have any theory why that is? I I do agree. Part of it is that the original film, it was visually spectacular, but it also had a pretty predictable and unmemorable plot. And also the film is pretty violent. It's not particularly kid-friendly. And I think a lot of franchises that endure in the way we're talking about, they have an appeal to kids so that part of the audience feels like they've grown up with it. And finally, outside of the Navi, there aren't many memorable characters. No one like a Darth Vader or a Mr. Spock to really focus the film's popularity. Well, speaking of characters, uh, there was some controversy when the original Avatar was released that I remember. You know, this culture of the Navi seemed taken, you know, directly from indigenous and particularly Native American cultures. Is that any better in, in this sequel? Um, not really. I mean, at, at times, I think the Navi can feel like a collection of tropes about indigenous culture. Their primary weapons are bows and arrows. They have a connection to the planet's animals, nature, and a great spirit. This sequel continues the story of a white male hero who joins the indigenous people and then leads this fight against a brutal invasion from his own people. 
But there are indigenous people who've said they see themselves in the culture of the Navi and appreciate seeing the struggle against colonization depicted in a big budget movie. Huh. The ultimate question here is pretty simple. I mean, is the movie any good? <laughs> yeah, well, you know, I was blown away by the visuals, especially in 3D, which is just like jaw-droppingly hmm. immersive. And I also think the plot is stronger than the first movie, but there's this element of appropriating indigenous culture, which feels a little odd to me, even as I cheer for the Navi to defeat the evil humans. That's NPR critic and media analyst Eric Deggins. Eric, thank you. Thank you. It's Morning Edition from NPR News. I'm Rob Schmitz. And I'm A. Martinez. This is 90.9 WBOR. The Marketplace Morning Report has analysis of the latest signals from the Federal Reserve coming up. Right now, it's 849. Later today at noon, it's here and now. And Deepa Fernandez is here to tell us what they're going to be talking about today. Hi, Deepa. Hi, Rupa. Good morning. So we have a lot on today's show. We are actually going to be going south of the border into Juarez. We've all heard about many migrants from Nicaragua coming across the border uh, into El Paso, Texas. But there is some really interesting and, and kind of heartbreaking stuff going on on the Mexican side of the border, including 900 migrants being kidnapped by the cartel. So we'll hear about that. And I had the chance to interview, you know, as you well know, Rupa, in this last election at the midterms, there was a very diverse slate of candidates mm-hmm. that won offices all over the country. I'm going to talk to the new mayor-elect of Oakland, California, mm-hmm. who is among American woman, the first Hmong American to lead a major U.S. city. Wow, that's fascinating. Okay, well, have a good time. (laughs) Thank you. That's here and now. Today at noon, it's 8.51. We're funded by you, our listeners, and by Bess, Berry & Sims Healthcare Law Practice, advising academic medical centers and healthcare providers on complex legal matters nationwide. More at BassBerry.com. Some scientists have spent their careers studying what time actually is, and they say it's a more complicated phenomenon than you might believe. Time is not an absolute And that's radical. Next in our series on the mysteries of time, this afternoon on All Things Considered from NPR News. Today from 4 to 6.30 on 90.9 WBUR, Boston's NPR News Station. Who put the silicon in Silicon Valley? Marketplace Morning Report is supported by UKG, an HR payroll and workforce management solution designed to help make a fairy tale workplace a reality. UKG, our purpose is people. I'm David Brancaccio. First, America's central bankers followed the script and raised their key interest rate by one half of a percentage point yesterday. That short term rate that the Federal Reserve uses as a kind of throttle can now go as high as four and a half percent, which bleeds into most of the other rates we pay. No surprise there. The Fed's thinking about next year is where the news is. Marketplace's Nancy Marshall-Genzer was at the central bank briefing yesterday. Yesterday's half percentage point interest rate increase is a step down from the three-quarter percentage point hikes earlier this year. But Fed Chair Powell made it clear the Fed isn't done raising rates by making it more expensive to borrow. The Fed is trying to cool off demand and tamp down inflation. Yesterday, the Fed estimated that economic growth next year will only reach an anemic half percent. But Powell said he doesn't think we'll slip into a recession. It's slow growth. It's well below trend. 
it's not going to feel like a boom. It's going to feel like very slow growth. But Powell added there's no completely painless way to bring inflation down. Job losses are likely as the economy cools. The Fed projects the unemployment rate will rise to 4.6 percent next year as its benchmark interest rate soars above 5 percent. I'm Nancy Marshall-Genser for Marketplace. We have news just now that retail sales fell in November, six-tenths of a percent. So some of the painful medicine from the Fed is biting in other ways. Stock market participants are in a snit. S&P futures are down 1.3 percent now. Dow futures are down 1 percent. NASDAQ futures are down 1.5 percent. Marketplace Morning Report is supported by Progressive. Progressive Commercial Insurance offers personalized rates and customizable coverages for your business vehicles. More at ProgressiveCommercial.com. And by Fisher Investments. As a fiduciary, Fisher Investments is obligated to act in their client's best interest. Learn more at FisherInvestments.com. Investments and securities involve the risk of loss. The future began 75 years ago tomorrow with the invention of something small that some argue was more consequential than the wheel or the printing press. The transistor was born at Bell Labs in New Jersey December 16, 1947. Now this week here, we're looking at the ecosystems of innovation that turned that invention into modern civilization. This morning, how the transistor revolution gets to what would later be called Silicon Valley. Why there, of all places? Because his mother lived there is one of the answers. <laughs> he's coming home. Yeah. Right. And he's on a lookout for what he called hot minds, and he brings them all there. A tech curator, an author, and a historian talking about why William Shockley, one of the Nobel Prize winners for the transistor, moved from New Jersey to California's Santa Clara Valley to be closer to his mother and to start a transistor factory. There are other reasons. Leslie Berlin, the historian, is author of Troublemakers, Silicon Valley's Coming of Age. Okay, I will throw out universities, Stanford and Berkeley across the bay. Well, what are some of the other ingredients in the Silicon Valley mix? You've got the presence of the Department of Defense in the form of Moffett Field. And this becomes vitally important because the only place that can afford to buy transistors early on is the Department of Defense. I suppose the weather is nice out there, but there are some cultural aspects there. Like you can try something, it may not work out, but your name is not mud at that point. You might get a second chance. It was a place for risk takers. And the way you can see that most clearly is that nearly everybody came from somewhere else. And it's got funders who also embrace risk. David Laws is semiconductor curator at the Computer History Museum in Mountain View, California. Just the ability to borrow money once you've flushed uh, venture capital money away without success. If they saw and understood the reasons why it wasn't successful, then they'll take a risk with you. That won't happen in many parts of the world. I think it can't be underestimated the importance of William Shockley himself showing up and being able to attract the hottest minds. Shockley, as Gordon Moore said one time, was so brilliant he could see electrons. But he was very egotistical, wanted the glory for himself. And the style of management he used just really upset all these young new grads he had hired. And so they decided to seek fame and fortune elsewhere. 
This not-so-quiet quitting of eight people at once, the traitorous eight in Shockley's view, is a turning point in the Valley, the dawn of startup culture. In search of a new gig as a group, one of the eight calls his father's stockbroker. And here's the advice. What you really ought to do is set up your own company and we will find funding for you. The Gordon Moore, speaking with the Electrochemical Society in 2016. Dude's got a law named after him. Moore's Law foresaw that transistors on a chip would double every year for decades. And that stockbroker? Well, he finds venture money from a camera company back east for the traders, which becomes Fairchild Semiconductor, where Laws, the curator, used to work. The combination of venture capital, the fact that many companies spun out of Fairchild, all the resources in terms of supplies of equipment and other services just created a whole ecosystem that was very receptive to the growth of new companies. Out of this nucleus comes Intel with a market value today of $120 billion. Moore is co-founder. Another of the eight, Robert Noyce, one of the two inventors of the integrated circuit, becomes CEO. Shockley never does get especially rich from his transistor. In 1982, he runs for governor of California, pushing a platform that embraces the racist view of eugenics. He loses. And note that out of that group of eight who left Shockley, all but more were new to California and two were international immigrants, including John Arnie, who devises the process that revolutionizes chip manufacturing. He's from Switzerland. And this continues to be a key to Silicon Valley's success in the form of immigrants who are new to the country coming now. And back then, it was immigrants who were new to this specific part of the country. And back at Bell Labs, two other immigrants, one from Egypt, one from Korea, were to invent the kind of transistor we're most likely to use now. We'll have more on that tomorrow. And we're just finishing a 20-minute podcast on all of this that hits the Morning Report podcast feed on the transistor's birthday tomorrow. I'm David Brancaccio with our Morning Report. From APM, American Public Media. This is 90.9 WBUR. In your forecast, low 40s, cloudy and windy today. It only falls a bit to around 40 tonight. Showers may begin overnight, then a rainy, windy Friday in the mid-40s. The rain and wind continue into Saturday morning, then mostly cloudy and mid-40s. Sunny and upper 30s on Sunday. It's 39 degrees in Boston. We're coming up on 9 o'clock, and the BBC is next. We're funded by you, our listeners, and by Road Scholar, creating educational travel adventures for adults around the world. Learn more at roadscholar.org slash learning. There's a bankruptcy tactic that shields executives from accountability. The tactic gives corporate leaders like the Sackler family and Harvey Weinstein immunity from lawsuits for life. Chapter 11 practice needs to be reined in because this is not supposed to be the Wild West. Should the common tactic be reined in, and if so, how? That's On Point this morning at 10 on 90.9 WBUR, Boston's NPR news station.
I'm Ideas and Opinion Editor Chloe Axelson, and this is 90.9 WBUR-FM Boston, 92.7 WBUA-Tisbury, and 89.1 WBUH-Brewster. Listen anytime with our app or at WBUR.org. WBUR, Boston's NPR news station.